Criminal Magic, Chapter 24. Wednesday, 9.02, GMT-8. Once more under the breach, dear friends, once more. Aramichi Mikio likes the rain, which is fortunate since Portland is a sodden place. Ari associates rain nowadays with this verdant lushness, a tendency toward uninhibited wild and beautiful growth. In this sense, he is a most traditional observer. He gazes off to the west where the skyline is still partly treed. Even the rabid industrial hunger for wood products hasn't completely denuded the wall of hills surrounding the greater metro area. He supposes that area gentry have insisted on the maintenance of at least this thin hedge of trees to protect the view. A lack of ability to stomach scars. When his employer told him his next assignment was to be here, he'd practically fallen to his knees in thanks. The last two stations in Mongolia and Cairo were enough to cure him forever of the alarmingly naive belief he'd harbored that the unsullied desolation of desert existence would act as a nourishing medium for spiritual growth. Many of his staff complained relentlessly about the foul climate, the gray overbearing dreariness of Oregon, but not Ari. For him, this place is a place of promise. Here, one spirit might thrive. He is sure of it. His driver's voice bleats out of the intercom, breaking into his thoughts. Uh, Mr. Mikio, uh, as I understand your instructions, sir, you want me to drive down to the waterfront area? Is that right, sir? Down to the park site? You know it's uh, very mm, sketchy down that way, sir. Thank you for the travel advisory, Patrick, Ari says. I appreciate it. The tenor of his response shows nothing but sincerity. It is important to be solicitous of a person's concern for your well-being. Nonetheless, that is where I want you to take me. Don't you trust the car? Honestly, Mr. Mikio, the driver says, no amount of engineering is going to keep some chick leader from finding a workaround, you know? I'm sure you understand that, sir. Yes, uh, I do, Ari says politely. Shall we go? As the city slips by outside the Lexan windows, Ari plugs himself into the audio-visual port and the reports for the tenth time. First, there is an overhead of Portland with sidebar statistical rundowns. Population, income services, average age, male-female, industry stats, usage, energy usage, utility usage. He stops the disc here. Electricity, consumption by type, production by type, regional use pattern, industry, domestic, recreational. Newtown is a net producer. He scrolls to that element of the documentation, scans the figures for income and expense. Newtown is also a negative input and demand source for waste extraction. Hmm. He moves on to a series of individual images. Documents list these are citizens thought to be central to the informal government structure of Newtown. He stops and dials in on one particular face. Gray, Kali, age, approximately 40, origin, California native, Education, UCSB, Abstract Mathematics, Engineering, Biotech, BA, Partial Grad, Founding, Charter Assignee, Collective, Membership, Terminated, Overall Record, Incomplete, Thought to be Involved, Newtown, Portland. All the intel suggests this one character is central to the working of Portland's Newtown. A thought, one that is common companion to such research efforts, breaks across the opening of Ari's mind. Files like Lee's, the biographical testimony to a person's movements through life, are so empty, so lacking in substance. They cannot enumerate the aches and pains of life 
the simplest hints of a cramp in the stomach that betrays unhappiness, that telltale dissatisfaction at some otherwise trivial aspect of life is reduced here to photos and academic records and centuries of unsteady surveillance film that reveal nothing of the real man. His chin drops in disappointed meditation toward the shallow of his chest as he considers the face looking back at him. Something about that look. He leans in, examining the creases, the abstract detail conveyed but not stated by this portrayal of eyes. There is a suggestion there of something persistently elusive, a certain key to a kind of mystery hidden in these eyes, and he cannot for the life of him name it. Forget the ambiguous intel pap about the man, the hero-worshipping praise of townies, the annoyed venom of those on the Indu side who are vexed by his resistance, spurred by envy at his skill as an engineer and ability to navigate the political waters of the city. They'd really like to see him and his problem go away. That would be ideal. If only the adversary cared about money. That too amuses Ari. These people seem to lack nothing for money. Ari smiles whenever he hears the board members blowing the banality of this complaint. Men who are the product of money have a difficult time seeing what a shamefully shallow driver it is for some, but he knows. No one has ever celebrated the birth, death, or wedding of a dollar. He focuses again on the photo. Here, in the face, in this essential aspect of being that is the identifier of this man, Gray, that is where the information he seeks is hiding. And of course, this is the headbreaker. What he wants to know is right here in front of him, plainly advertised in the simple, curvilinear representations of a man. There is a better way, and he knows what it is. He makes up his mind, raising his head in time to make out the top of the bridge through the windshield. Patrick, could you kick us down to the Rossi Island Bridge? I'd like to take a walk. The car slows noticeably. Sir? Patrick's voice is low and grave as he strives to respond to the request. I cannot stress fully enough that going for a walk down there is... I know you had a personal interest in going to the Japanese-American Bill of Rights Memorial back there at Steelbridge, but in Newtown, I mean, that would be, well, in my opinion, I appreciate your concern, Patrick, Ari says. His tone is not dismissive or patronizing, just factual. After all, it is true, he supposes. Any driver in his right mind would panic knowing that his charge gets slabbed. He's out of a job, at the very least. I've left a statement at the office indicating that you have tried everything within your scope of authority to restrain me, and that this is entirely my idea. Uh, that's all very well, Mr. Mikio, but... Patrick, please, Ari says. At this rate, we'll be all day getting down there. I would like it to be daylight while I'm walking. No further commentary issues from the front seat. As the vehicle slices through the darkened narrows of streets lined by brick and wooden industrial buildings, Ari notices Mount Hood's brilliant conical wink flashing at him through the gaps between buildings. To the north, the ruined mesa of Mount St. Helens lies hunkered under a forever snow shawl. Their path, chosen by Patrick to reduce for as long as possible any perceived threat to his employment, takes them high enough on the slope of the western hills for Ari to see beyond the bristle of economic prosperity signaling downtown, snatches of the vast, uneven swatch of on-site development that characterizes the sprawl of Newtown, Portland. So many bridges. Ari consulted the stored images of the many bridges of Portland's steel and concrete, some structures engineered over a hundred years back. The power of rivers, 
the wonder of solutions imposed on problems that were never there until the press of human habitation defined them as such. Fir trees, trunks stripped of limbs to the height of long handled saws reach cast late day shadow over the shatter of community that stipples the hillside. He twists in his seat, throwing an arm over the back of it to get a better look at the small park they are passing. The prescience provided by an unwavering attention to the rearview mirror prompts Patrick to ease off on the accelerator. Buried in the early shadow cast by a row of granite-faced mansions, the rectangle of lawn spared from development's juggernaut by an accident of wealth acts as a stage for two couples practicing dance steps on the covered platform of the whitewashed cupola set in the blue fur tips planted at the ring at the heart of the park. Dance music. Ari feels the rise of emotions in his chest, watches the sway and dip of the anonymous dancers until they fall away, obscured by the corner of a house. Sir, Mr. Mikio, we could swing back around. Ari knows he has made a good decision in this man. He will make sure his pay is raised and that no one in the pool other than he has access to him. Very attentive, Patrick. Very nice. No, thank you. Not at the moment. Perhaps we'll pass this way again sometime. You bet, sir. Sure thing. Patrick marks the cross streets in his memory. A certain lump of discomfort has lodged behind the passenger's shirt buttons. Memories loosed by coincidence are a free-floating miasma of possibility. Lower the window, would you, Patrick? A bit of air would be good. The window slides into its recess. The rear view provides Patrick a spectacularly good view of his charge's eyes. He reaches up and flips the mirror askew. No need to see everything. The car gradually regains speed as it floats lower on the hill, on the, down the bluff face, edging its way a street at a time onto the population-corrupted floor of the Willamette Valley Gorge. Wednesday, 10.28, GMT minus 8. Ari steps down from the car before his driver can move to let him out. I'll get back on my own, Patrick, he says. If anyone asks after me, tell them I went off walking the rails. They'll believe that, won't they? I'm sure the majority of the fellows in the office think I'm quite mad as it is. That is what you pay me for, you know, being mad. Anyway, you're on full pay today, just as if you'd worked the whole time. Take the afternoon. Do something interesting. What he doesn't say is... Say hello to your mistress for me. Although the dossier tells him Patrick has solved the unhappy state of his marriage in an old-fashioned way, that would be cruel. Ari does not, cannot imagine himself as cruel. Not even efficient, really, though he is reputed to be lunatic for efficiency. It always amuses him to wonder how people who do not know him have formed such strong opinions of his character, the ones that they have. The vagaries of human behavior, especially his own, provide an endless source of material for speculation. Ari waves at once as the car turns and disappears into the tangle of urban streets to the west. Twelve days is not enough time to get to know a place. How will I propose a plan on dealing with this question in the next four days? The naked absurdity of the challenge he confronts brings a harsh laugh up from his belly. He gives a quick scope around to see if anyone has noticed he is alone. How embarrassing, he thinks. I sound like a dog choking on a bone. This observation yanks another laugh out of him. More than anything, he is amused by the silliness of his own shallow vanity. 
and laughing feels good. I spent more than four days trying to understand what happened to a sick houseplant, Ari thinks idly. A surge of frustration bolts out of his head. He feels the annoyance as a physical rise in his body temperature. Corporation mind. Hmm. No wonder these problems are growing out of hand. How do they hope to address something like the Newtown phenomenon using established operational control methods? This formation of local non-nation states centered on social structures rather than a resource base is not a conventional reaction to conditions. History is not, as far as his research reveals, aware of any other occasion in history where large-scale social dislocations across many cultures has resulted in numerous efficient reorganization efforts from within the affected community. And there are eccentric elements at play, which would well skew the momentum toward coherent communal endeavor in a revolutionary direction. The collective and the small but growing number of charismatic community leaders showing up in new towns comes to mind. There are two highly combustible radicals at play here. Wednesday, 10.28 GMT. Kali is careful where he puts his foot the crumbling brick that lies buried under the decomposing layers of drywall and splintered plywood makes for an uncertain underlayment. The sun has somehow found Portland. Following days of its usual missing in action behavior, after hours inside the dome, Collie was ready for a break, and this accident of sun offers an opportunity he could not resist. Sun, heat. The cure to at least some of his recent complaints, as he was leaving the building, Answer simply invited himself along. You bring this weather with you, Kali asked, looking sideways towards Answer, who is himself absorbed with ensuring that the slippery, massive construction waste hillside doesn't break his ankles. Nah, he says. I couldn't take credit for that, even if I wanted to. You know what it's like where I come from most of the time. Actually, I don't, Kali says. Right, Answer says, stopping in his tracks for a moment. I forgot. Kali points up to where the debris flow mounds up into a freestanding clump at the bottom of masonry walls. Let's sit up there. It's protected from three sides, and the sun would be good. Might be warm enough to strip off. They clamber up the rubble pile and sit on the splintered remnants of a huge structural timber that was once part of the collapsed roof. Almost before they've stopped moving, Kali is yanking his sweater up over his head. He tosses it and the long sleeve shirt down on the beam and lays out flat. That is the shit right there, he glories. Answer quietly follows suit, arranging his own discarded clothing so that his head lies almost touching Collie's. High above, perched along the mossy rampart of a crumbling wall, a peregrine falcon shuffles from foot to foot as it searches the rare clarity of sky for passing prey. The quiet is broken only by the distant rumble of traffic across the river. Neither man is anxious to start a conversation. Their childhood friendship and adult ambitions have combined in complex ways to bring them together again, but the restraints imposed by past disagreement are difficult and tangle morass. The promise and the threat, Kali thinks to himself. Either man is in a position to injure the other, really. Absence, contrary to the wistful wisdom of deluded ancients, may not make the heart grow fonder, after all. Thanks for the help in there, Kali says. Job well done, and so on. We'd have been there forever doing it our way. Yeah, no problem, Answer says, beginning to warm in the sun. Lou's got on my ass down south. 
She told me you and she had a talk, Collie chuckled. You know how she is, answered Snurts. Talk to you like she expects you've already got all the information you need to sort shit out, only maybe you've overlooked the obvious. Collie nods in agreement. He can see her sitting in front of them, talking to them, lecturing, really. No debate, no discussion, just the facts. Those eyes could burrow into you with an intensity of purpose that seemed unavoidable. So you're here because she told you to be, or, or what? Answer asked, rolling on his side. Or are you here exclusively for your own reasons, whatever those might be? Answer rolls onto his stomach, bracing his chin on his knuckles. Might as well get an even broil going. He looks over idly at the top of Collie's head, still with its shock of thick, dark hair. A part of him realizes that this comes as a, sort of a surprise. Would have thought the stress would leave him gray and bald by now. You remember what it was like with the Jaguar? Answer asks. Are we moving off topic? Collie responds. Not as far as you might think, Answer says. Just tell me what you remember. I remember it was fucking weird, bad weird, that it stank like dried blood and talked shit that we couldn't even understand, Collie says, breathing through his nose. What's the connection, he asks. Well, Answer says with a slight sigh, Recently, in the last few weeks, I've had three more contacts with the Jaguar. The first two times, I figured it was like we always thought. The thing was just some force working in the world with its own agenda. Then, I had this little sit-down with it after talking with Luz, and it turns out all my thinking was wrong. Kali sits up as well, the two of them now upright on the old timber. This cannot seriously come as a shock to you, Kali says. Answer bobs his head up and down. Yeah, you're probably right, he says. Probably right. The answer to your question is that I'm not exactly sure why I did come. Luz definitely influenced me, but then she's been going steady on for a long time, right? Then there was the cat. He pauses and looks up at the cloud-fringed sky for a moment. Fact is that that shit that happened back at the lab was definitely not on my program. I like to tell you I'm here because I had some kind of epiphany, you know, but that would be undiluted bullshit. The truth is, I came just because my gut told me I should, and this talk, this little heart-to-heart -heart we're having right now, totally off plan, man. Answer pulls both legs up into a crouch. This is a position he's always had an affinity for, something about the comfort of hugging your own knees. He lifts both hands in a gesture of mock defeat. I don't know what the fuck I'm doing down here, really. No plan other than maybe Cap Kohler. Coming here, trying to work out how we can make this guy and his extremely nasty game just go away. It just seemed right, you know? You and I have had disagreements, heavy ones, I admit, but then when push comes to shove, you always know I've got your back, and vice versa. This boy, Kohler, is bad wrong, and it's going to take both of us to get him gone. We can sort our business out as we go along, if that's possible. Or we can leave it for later, he shrugs. Kali crosses his legs and appraises answer, looking deeply into the eyes of his physician. We used to do this every fucking day, he recalls. Clothing optional was the lifestyle, the choice of the privileged peyote eater. Trust was the main thing, trust in the magnanimous nature of the universe. All things are possible until you decide they're not. He focuses on his friend's face. I was wrong about the way I treated your answer, he says. The words are powerful in part because they conveyed the startled freshness of recent conviction. 
I made up my mind that you were guilty of fucking off, wasting all the great gifts, the magic, the leadership, the insight. I was just so pissed off, so self-righteous about you squandering all that. You know, all that stuff I saw in you that the righteous asshole's offering looked like a real handy exit. Answer's face lights up with the smile of a man who has just survived a hanging. Cully, I put people in boxes all the time unnecessarily squaring things away and I almost always end up going back and unpacking because I was dead ass wrong about what I decided was the truth. Sometimes you have to admit when you got it right. He rolls his shoulders, bringing his hands up, palms together in front of his chest. Listen, the one luxury we have is that we are still friends. Yeah, we're not going to sort out the past 20 years in the next half hour. And yeah, I still do not feel there was any overriding mission in life. And I would love it if this whole thing was all comfy and old time, but that's not where we are. But but check it out. The sun is shining, we're catching some rays, and I find myself thinking that the whole thing is going to work out fine. Kali smirks. Sitting still, looking into the eyes of his oldest friend, he is moved to accept the last piece of the offering. Things are going to work out. The sun tickles his scalp. A shadow falls under the wall opposite shades his eyes and tilts his head back to watch as the falcon wings off after a flock of inattentive pigeons. The engineer in him wants things neat, hungers for the ordered, the measurable, but that's not the way it is, not really the way it ever was. So what if this fucking guy can't pledge allegiance to the cause? Collie stands up, pulls his shirt back on, tying his sweater loosely around his waist. I'm dog hungry, dude. Could eat a small person. How about you? Community Kitchen's got some killer cooks right now. They'll make a great breatharian throw in the towel and scarf down. All right, man, let's do it, Answer jumps to his feet. As they scramble down the rubble berm, the sun steps behind massing clouds, leaving a dreary gray day to reclaim the heavens. Wednesday, 11.01, GMT minus eight. Aramichi Mikio turns off the street and begins to walk down a path toward the shoreline. Everything's so well kept up. Even this narrow foot aisle, where are the bits of wrapper, plastic tabs, containers of any type? No trash, nada. Signals can be overlooked. Signs can go unseen, unread, or just plain misunderstood. And this is not the first or only place he has seen how organized the supposed refugee masses are. The Brazilians are very advanced. Ever since Lula, back in the Zeds, their landless movement had defined the possible for the rest of the world's dispossessed. If you leave it, we will take it, was the rule. That's the way the Southeast did things, and for them it worked. He sees a blue heron kiting out of the heavens. Ari knows the Newtowners can't really keep Hindu groups from achieving extensive retitling of real assets. For the moment, that seems a practical absurdity. But that may not be the court where the question of domination of place really resolves. Where does the absolute of legal dominion collide with the demands of the marketplace? Some sensitivity is demanded in situations like this. No matter that the world has metastasized into one huge market possibility, the customer, in some abstract consumption per capita way, is still king. It matters that this place, this so-called country is a democracy. Otherwise, he thinks, Corbett would be tempted to simply play the China card, just pull a tank up in Newtown's front yard, and tell the displaced rabble it's time to find another flop. 
As he sidesteps a group of boys playing marbles, his mind logs the oddity of seeing such an archaism practiced out in the open without interference. He recalls also that the tank option didn't exactly work for the Chinese. The resistance began way before Tiananmen, back when the central government decided to build the Three Gorges. Displace a couple million people, bury some of the best farmland in the country under 30 billion cubic meters of water, all for the sake of energy, better shipping, and the permanent contractual enrichment of the power elites. People worried about the dam, preoccupied with the possibility of looming disaster caused by shoddy workmanship and fraud with a little push from some very sketchy local fault lines. There were the peasants who tried to stop it, but work went ahead as scheduled. First and second phases completed on time. The fillings began just a year behind schedule, and by the time the third phase was 90%, there'd been three severe earth tremors. The dam didn't look good. 15 million people were living in the 1800-click shadow of the thing, and those people were increasingly nervous. River Day, after all, had put a serious dent in the confidence of just about any downstreamer, no matter where you lived. China was still making no pretense at being a democratic society. Why bother? Capitalism had turned out to be a highly mutable structure, and becoming a consumer society didn't, apparently, oblige the government to any pretense of social equity. The local situation was to surround your dams and with troops, boats, and planes so you could continue holding onto the greatest reservoir of accumulated heavy metals and toxic industrial waste in history. The large-scale riots where farmers demanded equitable distribution of water, where citizens sought access to free, clean water, were vigorously suppressed. In the end, the only clean water left was from upstream of the Xiling Gorge, and then only from an increasingly small number of the 700 watercourses feeding in to the mighty Yangtze. After the first drought brought in the early teens, the dry Shanghai riots were the flashpoint for a large civil uprising over the availability of water that resulted in the death of no one knows how many people. For six weeks, the Central Committee and its government teetered on the brink of extinction as riots boiled from Sichuan to the China Sea. But it was the earthquake that closed the book on the water argument. 8.2 Richter and the nightmare of River Day was repeated and magnified a hundredfold by natural impulse. A wall of mud sluiced down the ancient hollow of the Yellow River Valley, forever entombing communism and four million-odd souls with the efficiency of a sponge-wielding child obsessed with wiping out ants on a sink ledge. At the end of the day, several facts remained that could not be denied by any ministry of propaganda. The first was that the central government was a thing of the past. The second was that water could no longer be taken away from the people without a fight. Its use, control, and access were forever forward a right. The third, everyone now agreed that the People's Liberation Party cement was decidedly low quality. A voice calls from behind him. Ari turns to find a small group of boys closing in on him. Anything we can help you with? The shortest one says. No, thank you, Ari smiles. You live in town? The voice persists, scuffing his shoes on the pavement as he casts a sidelong look at the stranger. You don't look familiar. A tall, freckled boy speaks up. He could be one of them scroungers been coming off the south and all, he mumbles. The first boy reaches out and tugs at Ari's sleeve. Are you? He asks, leaning in. Are you one of the leeches? The tallest one chimes in. Don't be a bunch of jerks, he says. The way he's dressed. Ari picks up the pace of his walk. 
beginning to imagine himself stepping lightly up onto a ruddy steel track. Another hand snags at his shirt sleeve. Don't you got anything to say for yourself, mister? A stern sound, this time an adult voice. What story, youngins? Ari turns to look. A big man, shambling gait, mean-looking mouth, is stomping toward them. He does not look happy. Hey, hey, Pill, what's going on? The largest boy says, his hands abruptly falling from Ari's sleeve. My question exactly, the man scowls. He ignores Ari, stepping around to come face to face with the largest of the four boys. Pill jabs a finger into his chest. Someone appoint you, he says, twisting his head, taking the group. You bunch of bathtub rings. What are you now, some kind of lackwick greeters at the city gates? Who gave you the job? He was practically pushing the largest of the young men backward with each word. Sir, if I may, Ari intervenes. He's grateful, but sees no reason for further confrontation. Always save violence until you know it is what you need. And he knows this man has intruded in time to save him from having to resort to that option. Seems like an educated man might go at things a little less haphazard, Phil scolds. Deliberate disregard for evidence is not a foolishness he tolerates well. You boys get, and he points at the large one. Gregorio, best not find you out here acting like a yob. I hear anything more about you in the playback here messing around with newcomers or anybody else. I'll take it up with the council. No, no, no problem, Pill. No, no sweat. Don't worry. We were just... The boys back away, completely cowed. Thank you, Ari bows toward the larger man. No thanks required, Pill shakes off the effects of too much courtesy. Seems to me there are easier ways to go about finding out what you want to know than by exposing yourself to risks you don't seem to understand. Sir? Ari is uncertain what the other man is telling him. Look, Mr. Mikio, you boys aren't the only ones with an intel unit. I'm just saying, well, we don't exactly have an office, but I'm sure you could have called. Please come back and join us next week for Chapter 25 of Criminal Magic. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a rating and review. Thanks very much for listening, and see you next time.